With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hi, this is Molly. And Cody. Please join us as we talk true crime over the fence. So, by the time our episode aired last week, <laughs> the skies were clear they and were. so was my voice. After a month of just Yeah, smoke. but it was definitely one or two harsh, harsh weeks that yeah, it was just, it was. it was super thick. Mm-hmm. But um, I can breathe. Yes. And we can see the stars mm-hmm. and the sky and... There's blue in the sky again. <laughs> yeah, so we always pre-record these episodes, obviously. So, we had recorded that one the weekend prior to mm-hmm. it releasing. So... Like I said, by the time it released, my voice was much better and the skies were clear. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so here we are. Here we are. There's been some concerning things occurring between um, mine and Molly's husband. Yeah, it's very so true. <laughs> Molly's husband says to my husband, hey, do you know what kind of like knives like would be good? And I, I don't know what his intent was. I don't that. either. I, do, I asked him like, why? Why a knife? Uh, I mean, I think it's maybe his dad, but his dad carries around like a pocket knife. It's not like he's carrying around like a hunting knife all the time. His dad always has a pocket knife. I thought it came from him being like an extremist. Like if he's out there mountain biking or doing something, I don't know, needs I to kill a rattlesnake. I don't freaking know. I don't know. It's I don't your think husband. he's planning on taking him on his bike rides. Maybe he was. I don't think he, but I don't know. The only thing I could put it to is that his dad always has a knife and I thought maybe in some grand scheme of things he was thinking like oh have a knife too but not like the knife your husband has bestowed upon my husband so he asked my husband for a recommendation my my husband goes i'll do you one better (laughs) here's a knife (laughs) i didn't realize how many knives my husband had Mm -hmm. until he had given one to molly's husband and then the next weekend he goes oh i got another knife i just put it over there on their doorstep i'm like what yeah and i then i had apologized to molly i was like i don't know what's happening no you didn't apologize you said why haven't we discussed oh. the fact <laughs> oh, yes, that your my said. husband keeps gifting your husband's knives i'm like i don't know we we need to talk about this when i saw the ring going off at my door i went to look at it and i saw cody's husband there like you know putting something on the doorstep so i asked my husband i was like why is cody's husband at our doorstep again he's like oh don't worry about it and i was like <laughs> okay and i'm like what do you mean don't worry about it and i'm like i know he was thinking because he already got one knife and so he's probably like how am i explaining why i'm having a second knife yeah, because the first one you're like but why and the yeah. second one you but really why but really why yeah it just made no sense so he was like just don't worry about it and i'm like 
okay and he comes in like holding something i'm like what is that he's like oh it's another i'm like another one like what are you doing what are you doing with these (laughs) and i think that i've only come across one of the knives like in a drawer somewhere in the closet right yeah you're Um, like still in the sheath and everything right i don't know why he has so many to spare your husband but i don't know why your husband wants them. i don't either so so uh we don't know what's going on who knows what they're planning behind (laughs) closed doors All you I know, know where our minds will go being in a true crime murder and I was like, podcast. What, what happened? Why do you, well, why do you have so many? <laughs> well, apparently my husband is down too. So, so there you go. We're good. I'm You're I'm good. in a better I'm in a better state. Yep. Molly talked about a sweet and a little old lady oh, nanny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good old, old nanny. nanny. <laughs> the worst cook in America, nanny. Nanny. And at the same time she was working on that case, I was working on another old lady case. I'm so excited that you had another old lady case. <laughs> and this one is from California. And the first time I really heard about this one is I was watching Quibi. Remember that oh. like, that streaming thing? Yeah. I downloaded it and I got it for like three months because I wanted to watch the Murder House flip. Oh, yeah. I saw um, advertisements for that. So yeah. basically they go into a house that is associated with a murder mm-hmm. and they revamp it to make the owner's feel good about it to you know change the vibe of the <laughs> to house not be scared you're living in a murderous house <laughs> for sure so this one took place in sacramento and i was like Rrr? they did this like super chic outside area mm-hmm. and then a dedicated area for their grandchildren to do art and mosaics and okay. stuff so it was pretty cool that's how i came across it then it kind of was always in the back of my head and then i was just kind of looking at things i should do and i was like i need to do a woman even though i molly was planning a woman at the same mm-hmm. time but that's how it came. And yeah. here we go. Back to back. Hey. Back to back ladies. <laughs> That's fine with me. I think it's I think the women serial killers are actually f- fascinating. <laughs> that was a big F. But they, I do think they're very fascinating. Absolutely. And I'm just going to dive right into it. Yeah. Um, this woman's name is Dorothea Puente. And she was born in Redlands, California. January 29th, mm-hmm. 1929. And there's various accounts of how her parents died, but mm-hmm. I'm going to go with this one. At a young age, her father died of tuberculosis, and then her mother died shortly thereafter in a motorcycle accident. Oh, weird. I don't know how prevalent motorcycles were in 1929. Well, I was going to say that's very weird for women in 1929 to be like riding motorcycles, I think even more so, right? So I was very confused. I read multiple articles, and I saw different causes of death, mm-hmm. but I'm going to go with these. Um after her parents passed away, they were all sent, um, her and her siblings were all sent to s- separate places. Okay. She was one of six siblings and they all went separately. She was sent to an orphanage where it is rumored that she was abused there, but there's nothing concrete on this. Right. But she started lying early on in her life, claiming to be the youngest of 18 children when she was actually 18. Okay. Yeah. When she was one of six, she pretended to be the sister of the ambassador to Sweden. I'm not really sure where you pull that one from out of your hat. So she's a liar, basically, too. She also had other lies about being the close friend of several celebrities. Oh, mm-hmm. Okay. When she was 16, she was living in Olympia, Washington, and worked in a milkshake parlor, which I always thought looked cool, like grease. Yeah. Obviously, this is before the grease time, but like a milkshake parlor to go mm-hmm. and get like, those milkshakes just always look amazing. Why don't they have but, those now? I, I don't know. that. Or like, you know, when they're like, oh, I went down to the soda shop. Does that yeah. mean they just had like the fountain drinks? I think soda shops were like where you could get fountain drinks, but they would like put like different flavors and stuff. Like you could go back in the day and get like a cherry Coke or like a strawberry. They should bring that back. You know, oh, they should bring I that back. agree. So she worked at this milkshake parlor, but she was also a hooker. (laughs) 
Wait. So there's that. And how she's still, she's 16. 16. But during this time, she met a man named Fred McFall and they were married when she was 22. Okay. They had a couple of daughters and then she had a miscarriage and mm-hmm. he ended up leaving her after that. And she sent her daughters away. One she sent to Sacramento and the other one she put up for adoption. Okay. I don't know a lot of backstory on those daughters. Mm-hmm. She was so embarrassed that she was left by her husband that she told people that her husband had died of a heart attack. Oh, really? And that's why she was single. Hmm. So she stepped up her game from prostitution to forging checks. That's her new way to make money. She was caught and had to spend four years in jail. After being released from jail, she was married for a second time to a man named Axel Johansson. He was an alcoholic and it was an abusive relationship, but it still lasted 14 years. Wow. So a good chunk of time. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1960, she was arrested in a brothel. I don't know if she was running the brothel or just at the brothel, mm-hmm. but she claimed to not know it was a brothel and she was just visiting a friend. <laughs> so she accidentally just stumbled upon a brothel where her yeah. friend was and... Yeah, didn't know it was a brothel. Didn't know it was a brothel. That's kind of a hard thing to not know what's happening there right. when you're there. Yeah, so she was arrested and taken to jail for that. I don't know how much time she did for that, though. Fast forward a few more years. In 1968, she was married to her third husband, 21-year-old Robert Puente. She was 18 years older than him when they married, and this is where she takes the Puente from. They started a boarding house, but it didn't last long because he got into a lot of debt very quickly. Okay. And their marriage only lasted a few months. Oh, that's very short. Very short. In 76, she was managing a boarding house and ended up marrying her fourth husband, Pedro Montalvo. And sometimes she goes by Dorothea Montalvo Puente. Um, Mm, Okay. But she used that like as a middle name. And this marriage also only lasted for a few months. Mm -hmm. And after the divorce, she started hanging out at local bars looking for older men with pensions or receiving some sort of money from the government. And she would forge checks on behalf of those men. And in 1978, she was convicted of forging 34 bad checks. She was arrested, taken to jail. And during her jail time, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia. She served five months probation. And during her probation, she continued to write bad checks. Oh, my gosh. The reason I just rapid fired through her upbringing Mm -hmm. is because there's so much more to talk about. Yeah, I'm like surprised because we just went through a lot of stuff, it feels like. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, when does she start doing the killings? Okay. (laughs) So in April of 1982, Ruth Monroe, who was a friend of Dorothea, they had a catering business together. Okay. I don't know how this woman had friends or business partners. I was like, and now she's oh, wait, a caterer? Because she lies. That's oh, why. Oh, that's true. So she, she lies. probably said she was a famous chef and like now has a five-star chef. <laughs> yep. Yes. Well, Ruth began living with her in the upstairs apartment at 1426 F Street. But soon she died after living there from an overdose of codeine and Tylenol. The reason she had come to live there was because her husband Um, was terminally ill with cancer and was permanently living I don't know if it was an assisted living home or a hospice situation Mm -hmm. or at the hospital but he was away from the house living and he was terminally ill and so she didn't want to live alone she was too afraid so her two sons moved her into Dorothea's house and Dorothea said no no problem come I got you Mm -hmm. good friend move right yeah her son would come and visit her all the time and one of her sons reported that he was sitting on the couch with her one day and he saw her drinking and she did not drink. And she oh, was okay. like, Mom, what's up? Why are, you, why are you drinking? And she was like, oh, well, Dorothea, she made me a drink just to calm my nerves. And she's such a good friend. She was like, okay, Mom, we'll just, hmm. you know, be careful about that. Yeah. And one night on April 27th, 1982, 
He comes by the house and he finds his mom laying in bed. She is unable to speak or move. Oh, no. And he's kind of freaked out by this, but he doesn't know what to make of it. And he reassures her, okay, mom, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through this. Dorothy is taking great care of you. Mm-hmm. And he leaves her. So why didn't he call the police or anything? I don't I mean, know. I feel like if I came and saw my mom, like, unable to move. and she, I guess she just had, she had been going, not feeling well for some time. And maybe he thought she was in a state of depression. Yeah. But I mean, I'm sure he trusted Dorothea to, like, help for her sure. take care of The next morning, he receives a phone call that his mother's dead. When the police come, Dorothea told police that her friend was very depressed because her husband was ill. So they deemed the death a suicide without looking at it any other way. Oh, my gosh. A few weeks after Ruth's death, a 74-year-old man named Malcolm McKenzie went to the police and accused Puente of drugging him and robbing him. She was actually convicted of three charges of theft in August of 1982 and was sentenced to serve five years in jail for oh, this wow, crime. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Because they also found that she was taking other people's money yeah. as well. The I'm people sure that has were a rap sheet too. Exactly. Dorothea doesn't let the grass grow under her feet before she was onto her next hustle. While she was in jail, she began to correspond with a 77-year-old retired man from Oregon named Everson Gilmuth. They became so close through their pen pal relationships that he picked her up when she was released and she had only served um, three of her five-year sentence. He picked her up in his red 1980 Ford pickup. This is important. Mm-hmm. Remember the truck. And this was in 1985. Their relationship escalated after her release from jail very quickly, and they were making plans to get married. He let his family know that when he had left Oregon, I am leaving to get married to this woman that I met. They opened up a joint bank account. Bad move, Everson. This lady is not good with money. <laughs> yeah, with all her forged checks. and <laughs> Exactly. And went back to that upstairs apartment on F Street in Sacramento. Oh, it was still there? Still there, and she keeps coming back to it. So in November of this same year, 1985, Dorothea hired a handyman named Ismael Flores to install wood paneling in her apartment. She paid him with cash and also a red 1980 Ford pickup. Hmm. She said it belonged to her boyfriend who didn't need it anymore. She then asked Ismael to build a box for her, a regular box to use for storage. Let's make this box um, six feet by three feet. I'm like, I was just going to say, like, is it going to be the size of a coffin? <laughs> Pretty much the size of a coffin. The box was then filled and nailed shut by Dorothea uh-huh. before Ishmael saw it again. And then she said, Ishmael, can you help me transport it to the storage facility? He said, no problem. Dorothea decided to go with him on the drive to the storage facility because she has to make sure that her books get there safely, right? All those oh, things in the storage, thing, they course. have to get there. Yes. But on the way to the facility, she told Ishmael to pull over on Garden Highway in Sutter County and asked him, you know what, just drop the box on the riverbank. This was a usual (laughs) move for people in the area. There was like a makeshift, unofficial household dumping site in the area. Mm -hmm. She was like, you know what, this is this can this is just junk. You can just throw it. By the way, humans are the worst. Like, why are we just dumping crap on the riverbank? That's horrible. (laughs) Like, come on, find a landfill, do something. Yeah. Don't dump it on a riverbank. No. A and giant also, box. if what's happening is what I think is happening, what a terrible way to hide something. I mean, can I just say that now at this point? Yeah. Like- Again, she th- said it's all junk. So I want to clarify this for you. She had this man, Ishmael, build her a box. She then filled said box with her valuables, wanted to make sure they were safe. She said she got a storage facility. Had Ishmael drive her, and on the way to said storage facility, he's like, you know, it's just junk. 
I'm yeah. sorry I had you build this box. I'm sorry I filled it. And she nailed it shut too. And correct? nailed it shut. But it's just junk. Yeah. Like don't worry. Don't even worry about it. Did he like catch on it all? He had to have. I have no idea. Oh my gosh. Like I feel like Ishmael would have been like, "Hey, lady, what am I building you? What is this for?" Ishmael just took the money in the truck. I know. And I'm was sure like, he was getting a whole brand new truck. Well, not brand new, but a nice uh, new truck. Five year old truck. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So early the next year, January of 1986, a fisherman saw the box on the riverbank and called it into police. Obviously, you're going to see a six six by three box, wooden box nailed shut. You're going to see a coffin on the side of a riverbank. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Let's guys, just call it what it is. <laughs> guys, I think you need to come check this out. Yeah. And inside the box, shockingly, investigators found a decomposed body of an elderly man. But the body was badly decomposed. And other than knowing it was an elderly man, they couldn't tell much else. Of course, yeah. But during this time, Everson's pension checks were still coming to the apartment he shared with Dorothea. She wrote letters to his family stating that he was ill and couldn't contact them at the time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Not only did she collect Everson's money, she was still making her own running a room and board business. She took in new tenants who were mostly alcoholics and drug addicts. And even though she was making some good money off of this, she wanted more tenants. So she would go to local bars to find new victims. I mean, tenants, sorry, (laughs) not victims, tenants. Dorothea handled all of the mail from the house, including her tenants mail. And before they even saw their checks, she would take them and then only give them a portion of their money. And she would say the rest of it is for room and board. So did she like go cash them and stuff? Is mm-hmm. that what Yes. Wow. Then the tenants who were drug addicts and alcoholics would take that little stipend that she had given them mm-hmm. and go on a binger. While they were away on these bingers, anonymous tips would be called into police about these people out there doing drugs and that are drunk in public. So those tenants would be arrested and put on a 30-day hold in jail but guess where the checks would still come? Right. To, to Dorothea. Dorothea. Mm-hmm. So she continued to pocket their money while they were in jail. Interesting business model she has. But I feel like that's exhausting to me. Like yeah. I would oh, need a yeah. spreadsheet to keep track of each tenant, who she called in, who's on parole, mm-hmm. how do they get out? Of, when did they get out of jail? She probably did. How much money do I get from them? Yeah. And if she didn't have a spreadsheet, maybe she had a color coded binder, something. a yarn chart, something. something. You can't just come off with that. Like off the top of your head. But maybe she was one of those like criminal masterminds. It's possible too. So for the next few years, Dorothea continued to house elderly and disabled tenants. Mm -hmm. And by disabled, that also includes addicts. Got it. When these tenants were living with her, she would steal their money from the government and again, only give them stipends and kept the rest of the money claiming it was for household expenses. Mm -hmm. Not only is what she doing illegal in general, it's also a parole violation. Ah. Because she had a stay away order from elderly people and from handling governmental checks due to her previous convictions, those forged checks with the men with the pensions. Right. 
but she was never charged with anything after these parole violations and visits. Really? Never. Nope. Just kept it moving. In January of 1988, Judy Moyes, who was a social worker that worked for Volunteers of America as a street counselor, came into contact with Alberto Montoya. He was known as Bert. So what a street counselor would do, they would go find vagrants on the street and help them, counsel to them, so that those people didn't have to go seek out the counseling. And she would try to find them rehab programs and places Mm -hmm. to live. So he was a sweet man and was Mm -hmm. well known on the streets, but he was also schizophrenic. He was also large in physical stature. He was considered a harder to manage client, and that was because he was schizophrenic Mm -hmm. and he also was large. So he was hard to control if he was in fits. But Judy Moyes knew of Dorothea's house as one where these harder-to-manage clients could go, which is why she had a good rep for, I'll take them, it's no problem. I'll take the hardest cases there are. Mm -hmm. These clients wouldn't be accepted by any other boarding places or care homes, but Dorothea had no problem with them and just wanted to help. Sure she did. Judy and Mo- take all their money. Mm-hmm. Judy Moyes arranged for him to move into Dorothea's house. Dorothea had represented herself to Moyes as a... Sweet woman in her 70s. She uh-huh. could do no one no harm. On February 3rd, 1988, Bert moved into Dorothea's home on F Street in Sacramento. On his first day there, he met a woman named Dorothy Miller. She was an alcoholic, and after he had been there for a couple of days, she left without word. But apparently this is usual in this type mm-hmm. of care home. When you have addicts and those with mental difficulties, mm-hmm. Especially at this time, it was the late 80s. They hadn't gotten very strict on the protocol as far as reporting people missing. And obviously, this lady doesn't follow the rules anyways. (laughs) So if someone left, she was just going to let them leave anyways and just collect their checks. Mm -hmm. Like, better for her. Dorothy left. And her mail still came to the house, though. And Dorothea was glad to assist with the handling of that government check. yeah. She's like, oh, I'll take that money. No problem. For sure. She was super helpful in that way. Mm -hmm. While Bert was living there, some of the other residents were 55-year-old Ben Fink. And 64-year-old John Sharp. John Sharp was the clearest thinking of all the tenants and did not have any addictions. Okay. But Ben Fink wasn't so pleasant. He was an alcoholic and would go on binges and then go full-on rage monster. Ooh. But one night, after one of those particular bingers, he just left without notice. Oh. That was in May of 1988. I don't have a time frame on this particularly, but after Ben Fink left... A foul smell started emanating from the house and John Sharp asked about it. And even the neighbors were like, what's up, D? Like, what's going on? Why is your house <laughs> so smelly? And she said, oh, I have a sewage backup, which, ew. Yeah. I'm having problems with my drainage. And you have multiple people living in your house? Girl, get your toilet fixed. Yeah. That's yeah. nasty. That's gross. But obviously we know that's not what the smell was. No. But John Sharp remembers this particular binger that Ben Fink went on, going back to that. And the night that Ben Fink quote-unquote left he remembers hearing something being dragged down the stairs in the middle of the night and he kind of just put that in his little mental filing cabinet Bert lived with Dorothea for several more months but in August of 1988 this is the last time Judy Moyes had heard of him Mm -hmm. she followed up with Dorothea who kept saying oh he left with a family member he went to Mexico Judy didn't like getting the runaround, yeah. especially because Bert had a, a spot in her heart. And she was like, no, uh-huh. what's going on with him? And she did not get a good vibe from Dorothea. Right. I just felt like she was being pushed off. So she filed a missing person report after 90 days. She also told police that there were big holes in the backyard. <laughs> that was it. There's just big empty holes? Just bit No, like recently dug holes in okay. the backyard that seemed to be filled. Okay. She just kind of put that in their mind too, like Bert's missing and this. All right. 
got it. She had her detective hat on. Yeah. She's like, there's some weird shit going down at this house. Yes. Basically. November 11th, 1988, her new parole officer and a detective came to her house to investigate the missing persons report for Bert Montoya. She allowed a search of her house. No problem. And they figured if Bert was there, they'd find him. Mm -hmm. He was 250 pounds and not someone that could easily be hidden. Yeah. It's a big guy. And she's like, well, if they're here, we're going to find him. They didn't find Bert, but they did find a couple of prescriptions in Dorothea's bedroom. One was an overflowing bottle of blue capsules. And I don't know what the capsules Mm -hmm. were of. And the other one was an empty container with Dorothy Miller's name on it. She claimed that these belonged to a relative that had been staying with her in that room and just left them behind. They asked if they could look around outside. And they asked her, can we dig in your yard? Based on the tip regarding. Yeah. Based on the tip that the social worker Mm -hmm. had given them. And she let them do it. She even gave them an extra shovel. She probably at this point has every right to tell them to no, go yeah, away. Yeah, please don't dig up my yeah. yard. But she was just trying to be helpful, Molly. Okay. She just wanted to find birds. She's a nice old lady just helping out. Yes. So as they were digging, they found various pieces of cloth, like clothing fabric. Okay. The detective hit what he thought was a tree root and he couldn't pull it out. So he kept digging around what he thought was that root. He crawled into the hole and pulled as hard as he could and the root that he thought it was dislodged from the hole and in his hand was a bone what looked like a human femur they led dorothea outside to shore what they had found bones in the yard and she gasped oh my she gasps what is happening in my yard i have no idea where these came from so they called in the crime scene unit the coroner and a forensic archaeologist which i thought was interesting Mm -hmm. The body they unearthed first was of an elderly female. They ended up pulling out an entire leg. During the same time the dig is going on, they also canvassed the neighborhood and talked to people living in the home surrounding the home on F Street, Mm -hmm. which is just down the street from the Capitol building in Sacramento. Oh, wow. Yeah. One neighbor reported a foul stench coming from the house around May, the same time that John Sharp said that he had smelt it. Right. He couldn't even use his air conditioner because the smell was so strong. Gosh, wouldn't he have complained about this sooner then? I guess he did to her. And again, she just said, I'm sorry, I'm having sewage issues Uh. or backup issues. Another neighbor, or possibly the same one, I wasn't clear, reported finding 24 human teeth in his own yard. What? All gold and silver. And he's like, "How, how did these get here? What? But they didn't report this to anyone at the time. They just... We're telling police when the police started going, hey, we found a bone over here. And they're like, well, we've had <laughs> oh. teeth in our backyard, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> Gold and silver teeth have been scattered upon my yard. Yes. The dig continued for a couple more days and became a, a spectacle for the media. Right. Worldwide media. People okay. were coming from all over the world and there were people lined up on the street oh, to wow. watch what was going on. On one day in particular, the detective, the main detective, recalls being out at the dig site and Dorothea was watching him from an upstairs balcony. Mm-hmm. He said it gave him such an uneasy feeling. She didn't have a mean look. She just was watching. Watching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then John Sharp, the tenant, comes down and tells that detective, "Um, Miss Dorothea wants to talk to you. So he says, okay. He goes to talk to her. And she says, am I under arrest? And he said, no. Why would you ask that? Because at this point, she's not necessarily a suspect. Well, no. I mean, Because they've found an elderly female in the yard. Bert's nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence of foul play on her behalf. Mm -hmm. So as far as they know, someone's just in their yard and they happened upon it. Honestly, anyone could come in someone's yard and bury a body. I mean, really? Yeah. So she's so she's not a she's not a suspect at this point. Mm -hmm. And she had a lot of people coming and going throughout her house over the years. 
And she said that she was a little nervous because of the dig going on. Mm-hmm. So she wanted to, and because of all the activity around her house. Mm-hmm. So she wanted to go down and meet with, I guess, her nephew down around the corner at a hotel in town. And he said, oh, I can't hold you here. That's fine. You're not mm-hmm. under arrest. So he allowed her to go, but he walked her there. Oh. She left the house wearing a red trench coat and holding a pink umbrella. It's a super iconic picture of her leaving the house. Oh, really? As she's being walked out by the detective. Oh, interesting. Dorothea happened to not be there Mm -hmm. because she's getting coffee when the second body is unearthed. So I think they were digging right where they right where she knew it was going to be. And she was like, um, check, please. I got to go get coffee. Mm -hmm. She's all time for me to go. Mm -hmm. So immediately they asked the same detective, where's Dorothea? And he was like, I just walked her down to the hotel to meet her nephew for coffee. They said, go, go get her. When they got there, she wasn't in the lobby. Shocker. Mm-hmm. The front desk said that a woman matching the description in a red trench coat had come in, used the phone, and then left in a taxi. Dorothea was officially on the run. Oh, my God. As the dig went on, it seemed like everywhere they dug, they discovered more bodies. More? Including underneath a storage shed. And I want to explain this yard to you. So it's a two-story house. Yeah. But they call it an apartment up top, but no one's down below. So I'm not sure if at this point she secured the whole house because mm-hmm. there's no one else living here. Right. But if you look straight at the house, it's on a main street mm-hmm. in downtown Sacramento. And there's a patch of grass in the front, mm-hmm. probably 12 by 12, and um, like a side area for the st- where there was a storage shed okay. and there's other items. Not a big area. Yeah. Basically just a front yard, not... So backyard. all this digging was going on in the front yard? Is that what yes. you're saying? Oh. Well, so yeah. it was a front because there was no backyard. It was just the house, this side yard, maybe a small piece in the back, like maybe an alleyway. But the grass was in the front yard. Where the street was? Where the street was. So all the people could see into the yard. So that's why everyone's watching what's happening. Oh, so now this makes a whole new picture for me. Because I was literally thinking it was in the backyard. So no. So on this main street. And that just also makes me think of like when the bodies were being buried, like. How do you get away with that? I, I, I don't know how she gets away with this. So we'll <laughs> continue on. But she said that the 12 by 12 patch of grass mm-hmm. and why there were holes is because that was for her new winter garden. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The winter garden. Yep. In this yard, they found seven bodies. Wow. All of the bodies had been wrapped in sheets and duct tape. In addition to digging up the yard, they also did a thorough search of the house where they found a license with Dorothea's picture on it but Dorothy Miller's name. Oh. Remember her? Yeah. In addition, in one of the guest rooms, they pulled up a carpet and found staining the ground what looked like just bodily fluid. Ew. Be it blood or just Something. excrement that had come off after people have died. And they think that the bodies were kept inside this room after they died for days at a time until she was able to move them to the uh. yard. So she's on the run. Right. And after her picture was plastered all over the news... It was either a call to a news outlet in Los Angeles or the LAPD. They got a call from a man that said he had just spent the afternoon with a woman having drinks that looked exactly like the wanted woman on television. Not only that, but all afternoon they had discussed his pension. (laughs) She didn't even stop when she's on the run. They chatted all afternoon about his pension and the money he had received from the government. And she gave him her address where she was staying and said, come by and see me. Oh, how happy do you think he is he didn't go? Yeah, I'm sure like ecstatic now. And how happy do you think the police are that they have her address? Right. <laughs> so they go to this address and they say, 
ma'am, um, may we get your name? And she gives them a wrong name. Oh, of course. And they're like, okay, gigs up. We know it's you. Your face is everywhere. Yeah. And she's like, okay, it's me. Yeah. So she gets flown back to Sacramento. And the only thing she says is, I'm sorry. But she never admits to killing anyone. She just admits to cashing the checks of these people that aren't living at her house anymore. When she was arrested, Mm -hmm. she was 59 years old. Remember? She told Judy she was 70. I was going to say, wasn't she in her 70s? (laughs) She told Judy she was in her 70s. And I think this was like to further throw people off because you can't imagine a woman in her 70s Doing any of this. Hacking people off left and right for their money. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she was only 59. Okay. So now that they have these seven bodies, they need to identify them. All but one of the victims didn't have any teeth. Shocker, because they were in the neighbor's yard. You mean the missing teeth in the neighbor's yard? That's where their teeth were. In addition, most of the bodies were so badly decomposed that fingerprints weren't a viable option either. So no dental records, no prints. How can we identify yeah. them? The police reached out to the Social Security Department for a list of people that have received Social Security benefits at that particular address on smart, F Street smart. for the past three to four years and that they could not substantiate had been seen for some time. Got it. Brilliant move. Mm-hmm. So the body of Ben Fink, remember that alcoholic, the one on the binger? Oh, yeah. Was identified by tattoos on his arms. Okay. Two bodies they were able to identify by prints. And these were the bodies of Dorothy Miller and Bert Montoya. The big guy. The big 250-pound man. I How tried did to, a 59-year-old lady... No I matter- tried to look up. She doesn't look large in pictures. Right. She's not a large woman. Yeah. But I tried to look up, like, her her stats. Like, yeah. what, what's your stats? Girl's like, how yeah. much you weigh? How tall are you? And I couldn't find anything. But mm-hmm. just by looking at her... It's not like she's a huge lady. After seeing the news, because it was nationwide, mm-hmm. worldwide, mm-hmm. Everson Gilmith's family contacted the police because they hadn't seen him since late 1985 when he had left to go marry marry Dorothea. But during that time, they had continued to receive correspondence from Dorothea. Yeah. Saying everything was good and writing on behalf of Everson. When they saw her on the news, they called in out of concern for their brother. Also, after seeing the news, the son of Ruth Monroe, who had passed away in the house Mm -hmm. and her family was aware of it and Dorothea claimed it was a suicide he called and said hey last time I saw my mom alive was in the presence of Miss Dorothea who was helping her yeah that's weird there's a little nugget of information for you the remaining bodies were linked with the following prior tenants of 1426 F Street James Gallup Leona Carpenter Vera Faye Martin and Betty Palmer the detectives work wasn't done though Mm -hmm. they reached out to neighboring departments because Dorothea just never stopped. So yeah. they just felt like we have a missing Everson. Mm-hmm. We and during this time, too, they're trying to identify if there's more victims because a lot of the list they got from the Social Security Department, there's more names on this list mm-hmm. that can't be accounted for. So they, they reached out to neighboring departments and said, hey, do you have any bodies that were wrapped similar to these bodies, mm-hmm. including the sheets and the duct tape? Right. And guess who calls? Sutter County calls. Yep. Remember that box on the riverbank? Yep. Well, inside that... The body was wrapped just like that. Mm-hmm. And they were able to figure that out, that that was Everson. Mm-hmm. So in all, she's charged with nine murders. Wow. The seven bodies in her yard, along with Everson Gilmuth and Ruth Monroe. The trial had 156 witnesses and over 3,000 exhibit items. <sighs> That's a lot. Yes. However, other than Ruth Monroe, who did 
have an autopsy Mm -hmm. and it was an overdose of codeine and Tylenol, Mm -hmm. no cause of death could be determined for any of the I was just wondering that. I'm like, how did these people die? But something to be noted was that there was the presence of Delmaine in all of their bodies. Um, There was no information more on this because it wasn't the cause of death. It was just noted as a commonality. So I looked it up and Delmaine is a hypnotic agent and it is used for the treatment of insomnia. So it's a sleeping pill. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Which Which would kind of make sense. Exactly. Yeah. Dorothea's defense didn't deny that she buried the bodies or that she cashed the checks of these Mm -hmm. people that were deceased. But they claim that she didn't kill them. These people just died and she just buried their bodies. The only bad thing she did was she just continued to cash their checks. Yeah. Yeah. So she's just trying to say like, oh, they just died. I just wanted their money. So I didn't like report that. Yeah. So I just buried them, Mm -hmm. but I didn't kill them. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of people to die on your watch, though, Dorothea. (laughs) You are not a good care home. No. (laughs) On August 26, 1993, after 43 days, which is the longest trial deliberation in California history, the jury comes up with a verdict. She is convicted on three counts of murder out of nine bodies. Really? Four bodies went with an 11 to 1 guilty vote, but it didn't pass because that one person holds Mm -hmm. strong. Mm -hmm. And two of the cases were evenly split. She was found guilty of first-degree murder of Ben Fink mm-hmm. and Dorothy Miller and second-degree murder of Leona Carpenter. There was declared a mistrial on all other six counts. Mm-hmm. Puente was sentenced to two life sentences, which she served in a California women's facility, and she died in 2011 at age 82. And until her death, she continued to insist that she was innocent. All the tenants died of natural causes. Oh, my gosh. In give 19- it up. Yeah, give it up. Give it up. <laughs> but in 1998, Dorothea began corresponding with Shane Bugby. And he ended up writing the book Cooking with the Serial Killer in 2004. During their exchanges, she allowed to have an extensive interview with him. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you'll find information from the interviews, um, almost 50 recipes, oh. and various pieces of prison art. Oh, okay. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to give you a big moral of the story. Yes, okay? moral of the story is... Moral of the story is, including Molly's story last week, it's not just creepy men in alleyways are breaking into your homes. It's also sweet grandmotherly types that you wouldn't expect such violent acts from. So if you weren't weary before, you probably are now. And apparently you can trust no one. Don't You're trust, welcome. Don't trust your grandma. <laughs> You're welcome. Wow. So that's it. Okay, that is Dorothea Puente in all of her glory. Well, I'm a little bummed that I didn't get to find out how she murdered the big 250 pound guy. I want to know. That's my only one. I'm like, how? How did it go down? You know? I want to know how she moved these people into her yard. And buried well, them. yeah. Like, there's stairs on this apartment. She doesn't have an elevator lift to, like, get them down. She's got to drag them down, which is why John Sharp heard, heard dragging down. But still, bodies are heavy. heavy. Especially dead bodies, you know. Yes. And she, also, again, this is a lawn that is on a road, main street in a city. How many bodies were there again? Seven? Seven bodies. Seven bodies to be able to get away with it seven times without anyone ever seeing you burying these bodies is just baffling to me as well. And the only thing I can think of is that she's a little old woman living in a house, caring for people, and people just look the other way because they're like, nah, that can't be it. Right. Nah, that that can't be it. 
Thank you for being afraid of any grandma I ever come across. Um, just be afraid of everybody at this point, except <laughs> for us. I know, because we're like us. super great. We're okay. <laughs> we are okay. So if you like that and you want to hear more and see more of us and see more pictures of Miss Dorothea in her red trench coat and pink umbrella, please uh, look us up on Instagram at overthefence underscore podcast. And make sure you guys give us um, a five-star review on Apple Podcasting Platform and any other podcasting platform you might listen to us if they allow you to do a review, please do so. Absolutely. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Yeah. Tell your coworkers. Spread the word. Spread the word. Come back next week. Yeah. For more true crime. Over the fence.